grab your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. There is an old saying that you're probably familiar with. Maybe you heard this growing up from your mama or your grandma. It goes like this. Pride goes before a fall. Have you heard that? It simply means that being prideful will lead to a person's ruin. And one of the most famous examples of this from history is the true story of the Titanic that set sail in April of 1912. At the time, the Titanic was the largest and most luxurious ship ever built. It was so built with several new innovations that many considered it to be unsinkable. It's even reported that the captain of the ship told someone before departure that even God himself couldn't sink this ship. Well, I'm guessing you know how the story ended. The ship sank, struck an iceberg three days into its journey, killing 1,500 people. And what made this story all the more tragic was that it was mostly preventable. The builders of the ship were so confident in their work that they only put enough lifeboats on board for half of the passengers. The captain and the crew also ignored the repeated warnings of ice being in the water. And even after they had struck the iceberg, the passengers on board joked that they were only stopping to merely touch up the paint on the outside of the ship. Pride goes before fall. This has become a common saying, but it actually originated in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 16. That's where we find this principle. And we see many famous examples in Scripture of someone's pride and defiance towards God leading to their ruin. Today we're going to look at perhaps the most famous example of pride in all the Bible as we continue our series walking through the book of Daniel. Uh, This series you see on the screen is entitled Kings and Kingdoms because the book revolves around stories of God's people living in a foreign kingdom and interacting with pagan kings. Specifically, we've been following a young man named Daniel and his friends who were taken from their homeland of Israel as teenage boys. They were dragged off to the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Babylon, where they were forced into the service of the king. They had their names changed and they were taught the Babylonian way. But despite this radical and tragic situation, Daniel and his friends demonstrated incredible faith and commitment to God. We've already seen how they resolved not to devile themselves with the king's food, how how Daniel was able to interpret the king's dream when no one else could, and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood their ground and faced the fiery furnace. Today's narrative focuses on the king of Babylon at the time, a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. And from his story, we're going to learn about pride. We're going to learn about who the one true king over all kings is and what this means for us today. So let's start by walking through our text piece by piece. Look with me now at Daniel chapter 4. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, there's a couple unique things going on here we need to talk about right off the bat. First off, this chapter is written from the first-person perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. Certainly in the Bible we see the words of pagan kings recorded, but I'm not sure of anywhere else where the pagan king talks like he's the author. For some reason, Daniel chose to communicate this part of the story in King Neb's own words. And so this chapter, it feels kind of like a letter from him. 
Even more unusual than that, though, is that Nebuchadnezzar begins by praising God. Let's not forget that this man was a ruthless pagan king who had just commanded his entire nation of leaders to bow down to a golden idol. And we saw the the fiery furnace situation opened his eyes a little bit. But now he says he wants to show everybody what God has done for him. How did this happen? What what changed? Well, King Neb's going to tell us how he came to make this pronouncement of worship toward God because this opening praise is a prelude to the whole story. Here's the story. Here's the change that happened. Look at verses 4 and 5. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Here we go again. King Neb, he has another one of those dreams. He's disturbed. He's again looking for answers. So he calls up his wise men once again, these next verses, and they're no help, as usual. Just like last time, he calls on Daniel, then he tells him the dream. Jump down to verses 10 to 17. Here's the dream. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a, man, from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. I don't know about you, but I think this guy has some strange dreams. Did you track all that? There's this tree, right? Really big tree, so big, everybody could see it, and so beautiful and strong that all the beasts of the earth, all the people could get food from it. Till one day, an angel, he calls a watcher, came down from heaven and had the tree chopped, leaving this stump, stump that is bound. Then things get even more wonky in this dream, because the tree begins to be described as a man, a man who would become like a beast and live among the wild for seven periods of time. What does this mean? Well, let's look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The king, he noticed as he told Daniel to dream that Daniel became disturbed. Because he knew this was not a good dream. Daniel was so disturbed that he actually wished the dream would be about the king's enemies, not him. And I find Daniel's response to be so fascinating here. If this were me, and I'm standing before the man who took me from my native land, threatened to kill me and my friends on multiple occasions, a man who was an evil idolater, and I'm learning of his coming demise, I would have been happy. Like, I would have said, man, finally God is going to pay this guy back. That's not Daniel's response, is it? Some way, somehow, Daniel 
it seems, has become compassionate towards the man who destroyed his nation. Somehow it seems he respects him and even wishes that he wouldn't be harmed. I believe this is a foretaste, a shadow of what Christ teaches us in the New Testament and how we should relate to our enemies. And please notice how different this is in today's modern discourse and how we treat our enemies. Daniel's compassion to this pagan king is a lesson in itself and would be a whole other sermon. So let's keep going. <laughs> Daniel did end up interpreting the dream and he told the king the bad news. He said, King, that tree, that tree is you. Jump down with me to verses 24 to 27. He continues. He says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree... Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel told him, king, you're going to be cut down. You're going to end up living with wild animals. So here's my advice, king, repent. Change your ways now. There's still a chance today for you to do what's right, and maybe this, this horrible judgment won't come upon you. So old King Neb thought about all the amazing things he'd seen from Daniel and his friends, and he decided to finally listen to Daniel and change his ways, right? Right? Well, unfortunately, no. Look at verses 28 through 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The king did not change his ways. He remained in his pride, and his dream came true. He was sent out into the wilderness. He ate grass. He became filthy with a desperate need for some shampoo and some nail clippers. But the good news was that this punishment was only temporary. It was for seven periods of time, which most believe was seven years. And finally, the king learned his lesson. Look at verses 34 to 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. 
my counselors, and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. King Neb learned the hard way. There is only one true God, and he is the king, the king of kings, and he is sovereign over all. Friends, we need that same reminder today. So let me give you three truths, three truths that King Nebuchadnezzar learned about the king of kings. Here's the first. Number one, the king of kings rules the nations. At this time, King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king and the most powerful nation the world had ever seen. He was known for his ruthless military might and his hopes to dominate the whole world. He spent his reign furthering the grandeur of the city of Babylon, where he rebuilt temples and roads and even one of the seven wonders of the ancient world called the Hanging Gardens. It's reported that he built a wall around the city that was so tall and so thick that a four-horse chariot could ride on top of it and even had enough room to turn around. All of this meant that Babylon was the largest, wealthiest, and most feared nation on earth. They conquered many other nations, including Judah, where they desecrated the temple of God, took their holy vessels, and put them in their temple for their foreign deity. The Babylonian empire was unrivaled, and everyone knew it, including King Nebuchadnezzar, who gladly took the credit. And this pride is what led not only to his downfall, but to the entire nation's. So one of the phrases we see repeated in this chapter three different times is this. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The first thing that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know is that he was not the ultimate ruler. He was not the supreme authority over the earth. God is. And the only reason King Neb had any authority at all was because the king had given it to him. And he could just as quickly take it away. Now look at those last verses Neb said in verse 34 and 35. He says, for his dominion, he's an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is the ultimate decisive actor in the universe. No one can stay his hand. No one can override his authority. No one can even say to him, what have you done? Because he does everything according to his perfect will. This chapter tells us that not only is God sovereign over individuals, but he is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. The book of Job, chapter 12, verse 23, tells us this. He, God, makes nations great and he destroys them. God enlarges nations and leads them away. And this truth right here is especially important for us to remember right now as we come to another big election in our nation in one week from this Tuesday. And as we see leaders and parties and institutions and powers making God-like claims, boasting that they're the hope for this nation or this state or this community, and we see the world putting their trust in earthly kings, Now, it shouldn't surprise us when the world does that, but it should disturb us when the church does that. We of all people must resist the impulse to put our hope and our trust and our unwavering loyalty in any party or person. There is no election that will save our nation. Only God can do that. 
And there's no candidate that can change people's hearts. Only Jesus can do that. Now, I'll repeat what I said last week for clarity here. I'm not saying that we should be disinterested in the political process. I'm not saying it's wrong to support a particular party or candidate. As Christians, we're called to honor the Lord in all things, including how we vote and engage. And we're to seek the good of our neighbors. And one way we can do that is by participating in the political process. But what I am warning against is looking ultimately to an earthly king and forgetting about the king of kings. And nobody thinks they're doing this. Like, nobody thinks this is their problem. Oh, oh, that's somebody else. That's not me. That's not me. But our emotions and thoughts and words this time of year around politics say otherwise. I found that we're often motivated and driven by fear or anger or pride. And that tells us that we're losing sight of the true king who is in control over all. God is in control no matter the outcome of an election. God raises up leaders and brings them down no matter who is in office. And praise God, we live in a nation where we get a say in the process. That is a blessing, and we shouldn't take that for granted by putting our heads in the sand. But we must never forget who ultimately rules over all. That's the first truth we learn. The king of kings rules the nations. Here's the second, number two. The king of kings humbles the proud. King Neb's great sin and mistake in this book is his pride. We see it clearly as he stands on his roof and he looks out over the city he built up. Look back at verse 30. He says this. He says, is, this not, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? We hear that pride in his voice. This is how we often think of pride. It's, it's arrogance. It's boasting, taking credit for your own accomplishments. But pride goes much deeper than that. One of the best things written concerning pride is from the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. You guys familiar with that book? Now, let me just say that if you have not read Mere Christianity, you need to stop whatever else you're doing and read it. It is, in my humble and barely relevant opinion, one of the ten most important Christian books ever written. C.S. Lewis has a chapter in this book called The Great Sin. And listen to some of what he says here. I quote, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we're more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Man, if I could just keep reading the whole chapter, I would. Because he goes on to talk about why pride is so deadly. It's because ultimately pride flies in the face of our creator. Pride is when we try to be God. It's what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. And the scariest part of all is that he says pride is something all of us struggle with. And yet few of us know it. We see it in others and we hate it. But that's usually a sign it's infected us too. 
So while we all need to be aware of our pride and repenting of it, I want to give you quickly just a few symptoms, a few practical things you could look for in your life that may suggest pride has taken hold of you. Here's the first symptom, fault-finding. A prideful person is nitpicky and critical, always finding what's wrong in a situation, always noticing someone else's faults and struggles. Here's another symptom, defensiveness. A prideful person does not take criticism well, but is quick to defend themselves and justify their behavior. They're overly sensitive and easily offended. They're rarely wrong and have a hard time admitting where they are and apologizing and seeking forgiveness. Here's the next one. An unwillingness to ask for or receive help. A prideful person wants to do everything for themselves. When in need, they can't bring themselves to reach out to others. And when offered help, they always decline and hide their true need. Here's another symptom. Prayerlessness. A prideful person struggles to pray because deep down they really don't think it's all that important. And they don't think they need it. They may readily pray for other people, but they rarely pray for themselves or confess their own sins to God. Here's another symptom, being self-conscious. We often think of the prideful person as loud and boastful, which can be true. But a prideful person is also the one who is easily embarrassed, afraid of the opinions of others. Sometimes even shyness can be a sign of pride. Here's the last symptom, self-pity. Again, this one sounds strange to us. We often think of the prideful person as confident and full of themselves. But a prideful person is also the one who beats themselves up, constantly criticizing themselves and who is insecure because this person is still focused on themselves. Now, these are just six of many different symptoms we could name. But what I want you to see is how elusive and how deadly and how sneaky pride is as it comes into our hearts under the radar. Scripture tells us ultimately that God will humble the proud. In fact, it's the last verse we see in this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. Either you humble yourself or you will be humbled. We also see this is not only true for individuals, but it's true for nations as well. We should tread very lightly when we see pride displayed from the leaders of our nation or our community. I believe humility should be one of the key factors when we determine whether or not to support someone for a political office. Yes, policy and decision-making is important, but a proud defiance of God will never end well. Nebuchadnezzar, think about it. Surely he did many great things for his nation. He brought them a lot of security and prosperity. They probably loved it. But those things did not ultimately last as eventually they were destroyed by his pride. God humbles the proud. Here's the third and last truth King Neb learned. Number three, king of kings restores the repentant. The fact that God will humble the proud is bad news because here's what we've learned. That's us. We're all prideful. We're all proud. That's, that's what sin is. At the root of every sin is a prideful heart that says to God, you are not in charge here, I am. We want to be our own kings. We want to build our own little kingdoms. We want to be the authority and, and live however we want. But this is why God humbling the proud is also good news. Because he doesn't leave us in our prideful state. 
But just like Nebuchadnezzar, God humbles us to bring us back to him and his design for our lives. Listen to me this morning. God's greatest desire for you is that you come to know him and glorify him and find life in his son Jesus. And sometimes to get you to that point, he will do whatever it takes. Sometimes like with the king, he will destroy your life and your ways and your plans. He may take everything else away from you until you eat grass like an ox and you see that he is all you need. And you know, sometimes we we mistake this for punishment. We think God's just being mean to us, but it's actually grace. See, when God exposes our pride and destroys our idols and humbles us before him, that is a form of grace. That is God giving us an opportunity, one last chance to turn away from our sin that's destroying us and turn back to him. And when we do that, here's what we find. God restores those who repent. Now, we don't know to what extent Nebuchadnezzar repented. We have no record of any kind of widespread revival in Babylon. I don't know if we'll see this fella in heaven one day or not. The text doesn't tell us that. But it does tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar repented in some way. To repent simply means to change your heart and mind. Watch this. Look at verse 34. The king says this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Did you see what he did? He lifted his eyes to heaven. See, the proud person's always looking down, looking down at himself, looking down on others, and even trying to look down on God. So when King Neb finally gets it, where does he look? He looks up. He looks up to God. He repents, he changes his ways, he humbles himself before the Lord, and he's restored to his kingdom. Friends, the same thing is true for you today. If you will just lift your eyes to heaven and look to God and believe on his son Jesus, you will be saved. God will restore you to a right relationship with him. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've walked in pride, how deep your sin goes. It doesn't matter how long your hair is or your fingernails. There's only one thing required of you. It's to take your eyes off yourself, off your circumstances, off the world, and to fix them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. See, through the cross, through the resurrection, Jesus has done everything you needed to be saved. So the question is, will you look to him? Will you surrender to him as the king of kings? The Bible tells us one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't miss your chance to do that today. Time is short. Even if you're already a Christian, don't miss the chance to do that again. Surrender to Jesus as the one, true, only King of Kings. Let's bow our heads.